It's been said that in New York, at least, prohibition, that nationwide ban on alcohol sales beginning in 1920 and lasting for the next 13 years, well, it didn't really curb drinking so much. It just made it all a whole lot more fun. Secret smoky speakeasies, the famed concoctions called collectively bathtub gin, and most of all, the carefree rule-breaking spirit that infused the jazz age all gave the 1920s an aura of freedom from those restricted, corseted late Victorian times. Many people have an idea that it was into the 1930s and 40s, once Prohibition had been lifted, that all that led to the great grand era of the cocktail with sleek silver Art Deco bars, impeccably dressed bartenders with slicked back hair and movie star looks, and then, of course, there were the stars and starlets themselves, for whom a long cigarette holder and a perfectly blended cocktail in a crystal glass were the ultimate props on and off screen. While cocktails, and elegant ones, were certainly popular well into the 1960s, the story of how it all came to be is a different story from what some may think. The truth, actually, is that the golden age of cocktails, at least the first golden age, came about 50 years before in the world we call the Gilded Age. Some of the most famous cocktails, from the Manhattan to the Martini, and even the justly named Old Fashioned, all had their roots in the bars of New York's private men's clubs and saloons of hotels and restaurants like Delmonico's. This episode takes a look at the history of that golden age of Gilded Age cocktails. It sorts some fact from fiction and offers up a golden age of history in a glass. I'm Carl Raymond, the host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast, where every two weeks we journey into corners light and dark for a look at America's Gilded Age, France's Belle Epoque, and England's late Victorian and Edwardian eras. It's been written that bartenders at New York's famed Waldorf Astoria Hotel in the early 20th century had to know how to make nearly 300 different cocktail concoctions. Drinking a cocktail, then as now, isn't just about what's in the artfully sculpted glass. It's about the room, the clothes on the drinkers, the decor, and perhaps most of all, the company. A beautifully made cocktail is a moment of liquid elegance, a true celebration in a glass. There is how it looks, often catching the light, and then, of course, there's the taste. One could argue that the perfect cocktail, just like the perfectly executed dish, reveals its layers of flavor as one continues to sip and savor. Recent years have brought about a true renaissance for the cocktail, Some classics will always remain, but with new infusions and more adventurous tastes, we have seen not only a cocktail renaissance, but a revolution. My guest today, a true Gilded Gentleman listener favorite, is returning guest Don Spiro, who knows cocktails well, both the classic and the modern. 
After his enormously popular shows on Absinthe and Champagne, I couldn't wait to bring him back to talk about the real story of cocktails, how they began, how they evolved, and just what makes the perfect mix. And in fitting with our world here at the Gilded Gentlemen, so much of it began in the Gilded Age. Don Spiro is the curator and host of New York's own Green Fairy Society, a monthly absinthe tasting salon in Manhattan's East Village. Don worked in the media and television world of Los Angeles before relocating back to the East Coast and began promoting vintage-style cocktail-themed performance events. He is the editor of Zelda Magazine, a publication dedicated to jazz, age, arts, and lifestyle. A former full-time bartender, Don has an extensive library of cocktail books and often consults on cocktail history. Don, I am so honored and so excited to have you back on The Gilded Gentleman today. Your shows have been some of the most popular that I've done. Welcome back. Thank you, Carl. And thank you for having me back. It's it's quite an honor. Um, it's been fun. I do have a, a collection of uh, quaint and curious volumes of forgotten cocktail lore, quite a, a library. And I also want to thank Jeff Berry and David Wanderich for clarifying uh, some questions that I had about this. I did a deep dive. And some of those cocktail books from your library you actually brought along today, right? Yes. These are the ones that I did primary research from. I have the old Waldorf Astoria book, the Hoffman House Bartender's Guide, Booth B's World's Drinks and How to Mix Them, of course, uh, Jerry Thomas's Bartender's Guide. And uh, an odd one that I really love is Drinking with Dickens. It's written by his great-grandson. And if people don't know it, Dickens drank a lot. It's all through his books. And this examines the cocktails and, well, the punches that were in the books and has a appendix that includes all the bottles that were in Charles Dickens' uh, basement when he died. So, Don, on our shows, we always do a combination of history and myth-busting, and we're certainly going to do that today. But let's just get right into the history. So, as sort of an overview, so many people think that the golden age of cocktails was in the jazz age in the 20s, even though there was prohibition, or even into the 30s and 40s. But that wasn't really the golden age. It was the Gilded Age. Can you just correct that misconception? Well, yes, there is a myth that cocktails were created in prohibition by adding different flavored mixers to cover the taste of bad booze. But that's not true. Uh, well, they were doing that. But Cocktails have been around for, well, mixed drinks at least, have been around for at least 100 years before Prohibition took effect. In the Jazz Age, actually, the best spots to go for a drink were overseas, if you could afford it. Americans still drink a lot despite Prohibition, but actual speakeasies were usually dismal places, not what you see in the movies, uh, and they sold what they could get their hands on and didn't care too much about presentation or taste. Well, let's go back a bit in history and sort of set all this up. So if we were dropped down, you and I, as invited guests at the wedding reception of William Backhouse Astor II and Caroline Webster Skirmerhorn, the famous Mrs. Astor, on September 28, 1853, so right in the middle of the 19th century, what could we expect to have been served? Well, that was an interesting time in New York City because that was before the Civil War. The Crystal Palace was pretty much a few blocks away. The Croton Reservoir was at Bryant Park right next to us. And New York Times was only two years old. So that sets the, the environment. 
Cocktails would have been for the morning or pre-dinner and would have been found at hotels, saloons, and coffee houses. But for a typical upper-class wedding of the time, the bride's parents generally hosted. And we know that the Scammerhorn family hosted lavish affairs. Uh, the next February, after the wedding, the W.C. Scammerhorns had a big costume ball. They were Carolyn's cousins and lived just around the corner. Uh, Ward McAllister described that party as one of the greatest events in New York City. And they would have likely served lemonade and cakes and made toast with wine. There would have been claret, burgundy, hock, uh, and of course, champagne in elegant, thick, etched glasses, not like the later Victorian thin glasses. Generally speaking, upper-class ladies would not have had hard liquor. They would have had tea at 5 o'clock. But the men would have had uh, an aperitif of sherries or Madeiras, digestifs of brandy or cognac or schnapps, port. The only mixed drink might have been champagne cocktails or a punch made with whiskey or imported brandy, champagne, or gin. And that would have likely been a communal cocktail, communal drink. It seems like this idea of punch was very big in old Knickerbocker, New York. But when you were talking about your your cocktail books uh, a few minutes ago, you mentioned Dickens and punch crops up a number of times in Dickens. So was this a British influence that we saw here as a result of that? Yes, because America had recently been a collection of British colonies. It was less than... Um, like 75 years ago. Punch has a history of stretching back, though, hundreds of years, and it was a communal way of drinking. It could also be a way for wealthy people to show off by using expensive imported ingredients and extravagant punch bowls, cups, spoons, what have you. Now, punch was a mix of five components. It was a spirit or spirits, a sour element, spice or spices, sugar, and water or ice. It was made in volume and took some time to prepare now, punch is mentioned in quite a bit of Victorian literature, especially in, in stories by Charles Dickens, who was famous for making and enjoying it. And some bartender recipes of the time actually include individual servings of punch because the end of the punch era coincides with the beginning of the cocktail era. Now, do you think it's fair to say that the notion of a cocktail is a particularly American concept? Absolutely. Uh, the cocktail was an American concept as a social drink, at least uh, the way we know it today. The idea of having an individual mixed drink for pleasure started in America. America was growing. And between the days of the original 13 colonies, uh, when cocktails first started to appear, and the Gilded Age, when the United States as a nation reached all the way to the Pacific and had territories in both oceans, uh, there were huge changes in what people did and how people drank. So... I'm very curious, and I'm sure my listeners are too. So what was the very first cocktail invented, defining cocktail the way we think of it today? Where was it made and where was it served? All right. Well, let's start with the word cocktail. No one really knows its origins. There's a lot of speculation that it came from uh, a horse trading term, that it was a term the French used for egg cups, that an innkeeper named Betsy Flanagan used to put uh, rooster feathers in drinks during the American Revolution. It, it, it goes on and on and on. We don't really know the exact origin of the term, but we can define what it is. Now, remember, back then, spirits were medicinal, not recreational, not entirely recreational. So before the 19th century, it was common to wake oneself up with a, a small bracer of some spirit first thing in the morning and often taken with a spoonful of sugar and some water. And of course, it would have been before a meal or after a meal to aid digestion. And as a social custom could be had anytime, this is not a punch. It's an individual mixed drink. And at the beginning of the 19th century, there were a variety of individual mixed drinks available, some of which may sound familiar. Sangarees, which were 
fortified wines or spirits sweetened with sugar and water and nutmeg, slings, a spirit sweetened with sugar and water, juleps, flips, grogs, toddies, skins. And like those, a cocktail was a specific mixed drink. The term was used first to describe a drink as far back as 1798, but we didn't know what was in it. Uh, It wasn't defined in print until 1806 in a periodical called The Balance and Columbian Repository in New York. It had published the word a week before in a list of drinks served during an election campaign. And after a reader requested a definition, the editor wrote back, and I'm quoting, Cocktail, then, is a stimulating liquor composed of spirits of any kind, sugar, water, and bitters. It is vulgarly called a bittered sling. So that's it, a bittered sling. Spirit, sugar, water, and bitters. That's the first drink to be called a cocktail. And so how did the concept of that evolve into what we think of as a cocktail today? Well, mixed drinks have an advantage over punch. Punch takes a long time to prepare, but a cocktail can be made a la minute. If a mistake is made, you don't have to throw out an entire bowl of expensive ingredients. At the time, ingredients that had been foreign to the United States were starting to come to the United States. We had a big difference in the 1700s versus the 1800s. In the 1700s, things came over by sailing ship and had to be taken over land by horse and cart, where in the 1800s, we had steamships and railways. So we had access to tons more things. And we had a lot of different modifiers. We had curacaos, we had uh, maraschino liqueur, everything to flavor all, all the new cocktails. And by the 1860s, cocktails were being chilled and served on ice. They were still their own category apart from juleps and flips, but a cocktail could be ordered with gin, brandy, whiskey, or any spirit, even champagne. And now they included a splash of curacao, which made it a a fancy cocktail. Soon after, these fancy cocktails became improved cocktails by adding dashes of other ingredients like maraschino or absinthe. So bartenders also used fresh fruit, which was available now because of refrigerated cars. You could use it for garnishes and juices. And some of the old recipe books have pictures of these cocktails that look like they have a fruit salad or garden on the top of the glass. So we start with cocktails, then fancy cocktails, then improved cocktails. And before you know it, bartenders are replacing the bitters and fancy cocktails with citrus to make sours, sometimes adding splashes of seltzer to make what they call daisies, said to be invented in New York City in 1873 by a former Hoffman House bartender. Uh, They made gin daisies, whiskey daisies, rum daisies, brandy daisies. In the mid-1800s, if you called something a daisy or a doozy, it meant it was the best. And that family of cocktails is still one of the most popular cocktail families today. If you want a brandy daisy today, you could order a sidecar, a vodka daisy is known as a kamikaze, add some cranberry juice, it's a cosmopolitan. And my favorite, though, is the tequila daisy. So it's tequila, cointreau, and lime. And if you want to order that, you just use the Spanish word for daisy, which is uh, margarita. So by the end of the century, the category of cocktails had expanded to include all mixed drinks, sours, Collinses, fizzes, even martinis and Manhattans. And today we think of all mixed drinks as cocktails. Wow. Well, it sounds like there was a whole lot of experimenting going on in the 19th century. Am I right about that? Yeah, they were taking whatever was available, whatever came out as something new, especially if they hadn't had it before. One of the nice things about this time period is because of the Industrial Revolution, they were getting access to stuff. But a lot of these cocktails 
their names and sometimes their recipes we know because the journalists wrote about it and the journalists would telegraph it, you know, use the telegraph to write the article. And people found out about it in the newspaper, you know, in New York, what people were drinking in Kentucky. Now, I want to go back to what you just mentioned a couple of minutes ago, the Industrial Revolution. It seems like just about everything can be traced back to advances as a result of the Industrial Revolution. How did that affect cocktails and the development of cocktails? Without the Industrial Revolution, none of this would have happened. Like I said, the 1700s versus the 1800s was incredible changes in in transportation. And of course, better transportation meant that goods and people were moving, and that meant more places for them to stay and drink. Saloons and hotels were the anchors of the towns, places where men discussed politics and other news of the day. Oh, as a side note, uh, if they drank, women would do it in private rooms of a saloon or at outdoor cafes or the less respectable bars and almost never unaccompanied. But the Industrial Revolution led to changes in the way booze was made. The The coffee or continuous still or column still uh, was invented in 1830. Prior to that, liquor was produced in copper pot stills uh, by the batch. So now liquor could be produced in massive quantities and there's no advantage for better transportation if you don't have the product to ship it. Now distillers can produce a lot of it and ship it anywhere. And what about ice? I mean, ice is such a crucial aspect to so many of these drinks, right? And that changed over the course of the Industrial Revolution, right? Absolutely. That's when the ice trade uh, began was the 1800s. Ice was extremely important to the advancement of the cocktail. Uh, Refrigerated cars and refrigerated steamships, uh, cars on steamships, were transporting it just about everywhere. You could take ice Early in the 1800s, came from frozen lakes. Uh, then it was shipped down south and stored in ice warehouses. It was even stored and used in the Caribbean. And adding ice to an alcoholic drink in the hot summer made cocktails extremely popular. Uh, and don't forget fruit. Fresh fruit could be shipped. You know, the bartenders were able to use fresh lemons, oranges, limes, and pineapples to make fresh juices and garnishes that could not have happened 100 years earlier. And can you talk a little bit about liquor distribution? I'm so curious about this. Where were all the components of these cocktails actually coming from? Did distilleries rise again as the result of the Industrial Revolution at the end of the 19th century? Absolutely, because liquor was being able to be mass-produced. Because of the revolutionary uh, coffee still, there were many, many more distilleries than before. And it wasn't just the the hard spirits. You had all kinds of other alcoholic beverages too. For example, Luxardo started producing a, a maraschino cherry liqueur in Croatia in 1821. And in 1839, people were drinking it in New Orleans. Creme de Cassis was invented in 1841. And by the end of the century, it was in several cocktail recipe books. Orange liqueurs made it over. French vermouth was first imported to the U.S. in 1844, Italian in 1853. They didn't really make it into the cocktail books until 1880. But but absinthe was in cocktails uh, since at least the 1870s in New Orleans and by the 1890s had made its way to New York. But very important for cocktails, uh, local apothecaries and pharmacists had been peddling their own patent medicines, uh, various kinds of bitters and cordials, and they were now distributing worldwide. Two of the most popular were Angostura, which is from Trinidad, and Peixotes from New Orleans, but there were dozens, maybe hundreds of, of bitters, and that was extremely important to make 
the first cocktail since the cocktail was considered a bittered sling. Now, you had mentioned something a couple of minutes ago, the coffee still. Gosh, that's new to me. Can you describe what that is and why that was important? First, copper pot stills, which people had been using, uh, they were called alembic stills. They were something where you would put in the mash, the whatever you were distilling. Anything with sugar can be distilled. So it would be heated until it got to the boiling point of alcohol, not water. Uh, the alcohol would then vaporize and be condensed and collected. And then you would start that entire process again. Well, the coffee still, which was invented by a, a guy named Coffee, <laughs> C-O-F-F-E-Y, it allowed a continuous uh, flow of, of the vapor. So you could consistently keep adding more to it and it would keep producing alcohol. You didn't have to stop everything and clean it and start over from scratch. So you can make high, high volumes of uh, spirits and you could do it with a, a bit more precision. So it was more accurate. You could get things to be really, really clarified, get a very high percentage of alcohol, almost you know pure grain alcohol. Now, were distilleries cropping up all over the United States as as well? Was this liquor manufacturing business exploding the way everything else was at the end of the 19th century? Oh, of course it was. Uh, what was happening was, and, and it had been earlier too with, with the copper pot stills. In fact, that was the first big conflict in the United States back in the 1700s. We had what they called the, the Whiskey Rebellion, which is when people out in western Pennsylvania who were making spirits, uh, mostly with rye, uh, they didn't want to pay the taxes. So George Washington led the army. Uh, Alexander Hamilton wanted to raise the taxes on them. And it was the first big conflict with, within the United States. And a lot of those people went south to uh, you know Virginia and Kentucky and started opening distilleries down there to, to avoid, you know, basically, you know, trying to avoid all the taxes. And they started using corn instead of rye. And that's how we started getting bourbon. Oh, it all comes back to taxes, doesn't it, Don? Yeah. Now, let's go back to New York and really drop ourselves into the middle of the Gilded Age here. So, Don, let's just pretend that you and I are going to stop off at the very fashionable Hoffman House Hotel um, in Madison Square, somewhere in the 1880s. The Hoffman House was just a block away from Delmonico's. This was very much a very important uh, area of town at the time. The bar at the Hoffman House was famous for its infamous uh, Bouguereau paintings of very scantily clad women. So what might have been the most popular drinks ordered at the bar at the Hoffman House? And what would we have found? Let's set the scene. The Hoffman House was built in 1864 between 24th and 25th Streets at 1111 Broadway. It was not just close to Delmonico's. It was across the street from the Fifth Avenue Hotel, one of, one of the most fancy hotels in the town. And remember how I said that people would come to saloons to discuss politics and news of the day? Well, political organizations would meet at saloons and the Hoffman House Bar was the headquarters of, of the New York Democratic Party, William Jennings Bryan. 
the only women in the bar would have been in that painting, which is called uh, Nymphs and Satyr. And you can still see it at the Sterling and Francine Clark Institute in Massachusetts. It was painted in 1873 and then sold at auction for $10,000 to be hung at the bar at the Hoffman House Hotel. It was an epic bar, 75 feet long, 17 bartenders worked behind the bar. So what might have been popular at uh, the bar at that time? Well, According to one of the Hoffman House bartenders, and I'm quoting, them was the days when everybody drank champagne. So patrons would order it by the quart or half-gallon bottle and buy rounds for the house. William Mulhall, who was a bartender there in 1862, said that the Manhattan uh, in many varieties was popular, as was, and I'm quoting, the old-fashioned, the absinthe cocktail, martinis both dry and sweet, the vermouth cocktail, the Bronx, and the Turf Club. I happen to have a reprint of the Hoffman House Bartender Guide, so we can actually make them today just like they made them then. He also mentions they had imported German wine, which they called Hawk, Hawkheimer, and said that the bar had a 50-year-old bottle of Hennessy cognac that they sold for a dollar a glass, and I'm quoting again, the highest price ever known for a drink of liquor in America up to that time. So, Don, were there any cocktails that we would know today that were invented during the Gilded Age? You mentioned a couple. You mentioned the Martini, the Manhattan. What about the Daiquiri? Where did these cocktails come from this period? Oh, these all date back to then. Uh, most cocktails do. Today, the standard Martini is gin or, or vodka with uh, dry vermouth and maybe an olive or three and a, and a twist of lemon. Manhattan's American whiskey with sweet vermouth and a dash of bitters. But back in the Gilded Age, Martinis and Manhattans were in their infancy. And there were variations of both. And that's because there were different styles of gin. There was Old Tom, Jennifer or Holland gin, Plymouth gin, uh, dry gin, London gin. And there were different vermouths. Also, there were different... Uh, Bitters and additions of maraschino, curacao, and often Manhattan was basically the same thing except with whiskey instead of the gin. There are just as many stories about the origin of each too. Some say the Manhattan started as the Martinez cocktail and went through a lot of evolution, but it's all speculation. Manhattan came about in the early 1880s. Some say it was invented at the Hoffman House. Some say at the Manhattan Club uh, where Lady Churchill was in attendance, but that's, that's been debunked. We'll never know. The daiquiri is a bit different though. Distillation had been brought to the colonies, and every island in the Caribbean had their own little punch, basically rum, lime juice, and sugar. In the French colonies, it was and is still called the petite punch or tea punch. In British colonies, it was planter's punch. And they had this in Spanish colonies too. In 1896, an American engineer named Cox in Cuba was working at the village of Daiquiri. He discovered this the way Columbus discovered America. He found something that people already had and he put a name on it, calling it after where he was staying. And then a naval officer named Johnston, who was visiting Cox, really liked it, took it back to the Army Navy Club in D.C., and it just took off. But my favorite of this time was the old-fashioned. By the later 1880s, there were fancy cocktails, improved cocktails, endless variations of cocktails with all kinds of sweeteners and modifiers and garnishes and everyone had a name. But remember the original cocktail, the, the bittered sling, which is just a uh, spirit, sugar, ice, and water? Well, if that's what you wanted in the 1880s, you asked for an old-fashioned cocktail. And now water was in form of ice, but otherwise it's the same. A whiskey old-fashioned is whiskey, bitters, sugar, and ice. The Pendennis Club of Louisville, Kentucky, claims to have invented it, but they might have just been the first to, to revive it. So in the Gilded Age, if you ordered an old-fashioned, it actually was something old-fashioned, correct? It was the original cocktail, yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. Now, 
I was doing some reading uh, to prepare for this, and it seems like there were among these various mixtures of cocktails some really bad ones, some real mistakes in this. Can you talk about a couple of attempts at cocktails that just were not successful? Well, the ones that were not successful didn't really make it into the history book, so they're, they're hard to find. But I do know some that were not so palatable, I would say. First, there, there was the Bijou, which was invented by Harry Johnson in the 1890s. And the specs were equal parts gin, vermouth, and chartreuse, which uh, might have been popular then, but is far too sweet for, for, I think, anybody today. When bartender Dale DeGroff rediscovered it and put it in his Craft of the Cocktail book, uh, he doubled the amount of gin, and it's much more palatable. And, and we had talked before about the Waldorf Astoria cocktail and the Bradley Martin cocktail, because there's different variations of that which are pretty terrible. I found actually in the Waldorf Astoria bar book, and it mentions it's an ounce of Benedictine over ice topped with sweet whipped cream. But that's that's more of a dessert than a cocktail, I think. And as far as the Bradley Martin, there are modern takes which are just really awful that I found in some books. But again, the book describes it as creme de menthe and creme de cacao, which sounds sweet but tasty. It's mint and chocolate. So yes, please. It's likely that was created for the Bradley Martin Ball at the Waldorf back in 1897, which I think you've talked about in previous podcasts. Oh, I did a whole show on that. Absolutely. Well, this brings up a really interesting point is it seems like a number of these cocktails were named for famous people, celebrities, famous society folk. Is that true? Yes. Anytime there was a big event, a cocktail was created for it. Or if someone was famous, a cocktail was named in their honor. It was all marketing. For example, when the first diplomats from Japan came to New York in 1860, it was something of a sensation. It was in all the papers uh, worldwide. And it seems likely that Jerry Thomas created the Japanese cocktail in honor of that. Broadway shows were celebrated too. When Rob Roy premiered at the Herald Square Theater in 1894, a bartender at the Waldorf Hotel created the cocktail with that name. Specifically, it's a, a Scotch Manhattan. But some sources mistakenly credit the Waldorf Astoria, but the Astoria part wasn't built until three years later in 1897. Uh, there's the Floridora, named after the London musical that ran on Broadway from 1900 to 1902. I know Barrow's at Industry City in Brooklyn actually still does a great version of that. What's in a Floridora? I just mentioned it in my recent oh. Broadway show. Originally, it was gin, lime, ginger ale, and raspberry syrup. That's how it was when it was originally written, and a lot of bartenders used creme de verboise instead of raspberry syrup, although raspberry syrup is pretty easy to make. I just love the idea that you can go to a bar to this day and order a Floridora and see what you get. And with that, Don and I are going to take a brief break to refill the ice bucket, of course, and we'll be back. There is so much more to the story. And we're back. I'm Carl Raymond, host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast, and I am with listener favorite returning guest, Don Spiro, vintage beverage historian, and we are talking about the golden age of Gilded Age cocktails. So, Don, I'm curious, were cocktails only served in bars and private clubs outside the home, or could you get a cocktail when you went to visit someone. What about this notion of the cocktail hour? How did that all come to be? Oh, that's a good question. Cocktail hour really is a pre-dinner time for imbibing. And yes, people could do it at their homes, and they did. 
That tradition actually goes back to before cocktails. Some sources say the cocktail hour didn't happen until Prohibition, but the Waldorf Astoria Bar Book describes the Waldorf as having a cocktail hour prior to 1919. They were simple cocktails, martinis and Manhattans, nothing too fancy. And of course, drinkers would come back after dinner for nightcaps. But the truth is, as long as there have been fortified wines and cordials, sweet or herbal liqueurs that are intended to aid digestion, people have been drinking them both before and after dinner. In the 1800s, uh, pre-dinner sherry, vermouth, or other dry aperitif might have been enjoyed with some hors d'oeuvres and maybe some brandy or champagne later for dessert. Uh, in France, it was absinthe at l'heure verte, the, the green hour. And as cocktails became popular, they began to replace the aperitifs and digestifs. So people were drinking these at home before they would go out to dinner and maybe sometimes after dinner. A little pre-game sort of thing, right? Just like today. Yeah. Now... We've talked about this a little bit, and I really want to get into this a little bit more. It seems like the increasing number of grand hotels, of course, around the turn of the century, the Waldorf Astoria you've talked about a couple of times, the Plaza, which opened in 1907, all of these had an influence on the development and the promotion of cocktails. So can you talk a little bit about that? And I also am curious about the age of the celebrity bartender. How did that all come into being? So hotels and bartenders, what can you share with us about that? When I was reading about the Hoffman House, I found a quote by cocktail historian David Wonderich where he said, and I'm quoting, hotel bars were where the American cocktail grew up. American drinks were rough folk drinks until ran through New York hotel bars, end quote. So cocktails might not have been as popular at the saloons in the rural towns where beer and straight drinks were the norm, but they were showcased in hotels. And if you look at the barmen who worked there, they were professional career people. It was at the hotel bar where cocktails became refined. Hotels in New York City were the places where men from all over the world came for pleasure, business, political conventions, and they all drank in the hotel bars. One of the first great ones was New York City's Astor House Hotel, built near City Hall in 1836 by John Jacob Astor. For years, it was the most luxurious hotel in the United States. The Astors built a lot of hotels. Uh, 1904, John Jacob Astor IV, the son of William Backhouse Astor II and Carolyn Webster Scammerhorn, Mrs. Astor, uh, built the St. Regis as a companion to the Waldorf Astoria, which he co-owned. In 1906, he opened the Knickerbocker. Now, the Knickerbocker Hotel had a large painting by Maxfield Parrish of Old King Cole. And when the Knickerbocker closed in 1920, that painting moved over to the St. Regis, where it's now known as the King Cole Bar. Now, the earliest celebrity bartenders, though, were known for not making cocktails, but mint juleps. Uh, these came earlier. Mint juleps made with cognac were very popular. Bourbon didn't replace it until after the Civil War. One of the first bartenders of renown was or same as Willard. He was called the Napoleon of Barkeepers at the City Hotel in New York. Sherwood Sterling, the head bartender at the Astra House, was the Napoleon of the second bar. Cato Alexander is also from the same time. He was a former slave uh, who owned Cato's Tavern from about 1812 until the 1840s, where 54th Street and 2nd Avenue are now. He was known throughout the country for his juleps, toddies, punches, and cocktails. And another slave-turned-bartender famous for his juleps was the restaurateur John Dabney. Uh, you might have heard of him. He's all but unknown today, but he was one of the most famous people in the Gilded Age in Richmond, Virginia. Uh, I mentioned only men, and that's because women were not really allowed to tend bar unless they were part of the owner's family. For example, the famous Niblo's Garden, the owner was William Niblo, but the proprietress was his wife Martha, who was known for her sherry cobblers. 
The most famous bartender of the time, though, then and now, was Jerry Thomas. Thomas owned and operated saloons across the country, from New York City to New Orleans and San Francisco. He's considered the father of American mixology. Uh, he worked at the Metropolitan Hotel in New York, the Occidental Hotel in San Francisco, and several other spots besides his own. He's credited with pioneering a lot of bartending techniques. He was also a personality and self-promoter, wearing diamond cufflinks and stick pins, and David Wanderich wrote an entire book about him called Imbibe. It's a great presentation of barkeeping of that era. So, Don, who wrote the first cocktail recipe book? I have a copy right here. It was Jerry Thomas. When he was alive, he was known for his personality, his flamboyance, uh, his skill as a bartender. But today, he is mostly known for writing the first known guide for bartenders, written in 1862 and published as How to Mix Drinks, the Bon Vivant's Companion. It was later expanded and retitled into The Bartender's Guide. His legacy is incredible. A, a reprint of his book inspired Dale DeGroff when he was the chief bartender at the Rainbow Room in New York in the 1980s, which kicked off the craft cocktail revolution in New York. Another celebrity bartender was Harry Johnson. I talked about him earlier. He claimed to have written a book first, but there's really no evidence. He was a rival to Thomas, but he did write the new and improved bartender's manual in 1882. Uh, then there was the Honorable William Boothby, he was a California bartender who was a state assemblyman for a time, also known as Cocktail Bill. He invented the Boothby cocktail at the Happy Valley Bar in the Palace Hotel in San Francisco, known for its giant mural of the Pied Piper, also by Maxwell Parrish. And the Palace Hotel published his book, Cocktail Boothby's American Bartender, in 1891. And the bar there is still called the Pied Piper Bar, and you can see that painting. Tom Bullock was a bartender working at the St. Louis Country Club. He wrote The Ideal Bartender in 1917. That was the first cocktail guide written by an African-American. But it seems like everybody who was a celebrity bartender at the time had their own book out, and recipes would vary with each book depending on what ingredients were available and who was paying for the publication. Most books had ads for different liquor companies, and it's no surprise that recipes in those books called for those brands. So, Don, do you have, of all of those vintage cocktail books, what is your go-to book? What is your favorite one? Which one do you always reach for? I'm not so sure if it's my favorite, but the one I always reach for, which is is always been reliable, has been the Savoy Cocktail Book, uh, written by Harry Craddock in 1931. And he's he's an interesting guy because he had actually trained in New York, I believe, and kind of unscrupulously took, took over the bar and his book is based on a lot of recipes by another guy named Hugo Enslin, who had written one of the last cocktail books before Prohibition. But it's pretty, because of when it was written, it has everything in it. Now, we've talked a lot about New York. I'm curious what was going on regarding the development of cocktails in other cities around the country in the Gilded Age? Well, in 1883, a gentleman by the name of Colonel Joe Rickey and bartender Jared Bangora made a whiskey highball with lime in Massachusetts inventing the Joe Rickey cocktail. Or Colonel Rickey and bartender George Williamson invented it at the Shoemaker's Saloon in Washington, D.C. Either way, by the 1890s, uh, gin had replaced whiskey and everybody was drinking gin Rickeys. The Midwest had plenty of saloons, but they weren't particularly known for their cocktails the way the, the port cities like San Francisco and New York and uh, New Orleans were. In San Francisco, a major port city, the best spots formed a bar crawl that was known as the cocktail route. There was Boothby at the Palace, but there was also Duncan Nichols who worked at the Bank Exchange and Billiard Saloon, which had opened in 1854. Uh, he ran it in 1893, right up through Prohibition, and he created the Pisco Punch 
It was famous at the time. Uh, unfortunately, he died with the recipe. So now there's just attempts to recreate it. But really, the city with the greatest cocktail history, I think, was New Orleans. It was the birthplace of three great Gilded Age cocktails, the Brandy Crusta, the Ramos Gin Fizz, and the Sazerac. Uh, the Brandy Crusta was invented in 1853, the same year as Mrs. Astor's wedding, by Italian bartender Joseph Santini. The Ramos Gin Fizz was created by Henry C. Ramos at the Imperial Cabinet Saloon in 1888. But the Sazerac is considered the official cocktail of New Orleans, and it was created at the Sazerac House in the mid-1800s using Peychaud's, the local bitters. There's arguments as to who invented it and whether it was made with rye or cognac, but we may never know. Of course, midnight on January 17th, 1920, was a really bad moment in the history of cocktails, right? So, meaning this was the beginning of prohibition. So, what really happened to cocktails and cocktail drinking during prohibition? I'm jumping way ahead here. It didn't really stop, right? Drinking did not stop during the the noble experiment, but it did suffer in quality. Cocktails had been at the, the height of the game. We, we had the last word, the Cuba Libre, the Pink Lady, Jack Rose, uh, all that was coming out. And then, boom, the 1919, the Volstead Act shut everything down. So it was a fantastic time for bootleggers, bathtub gin, organized crime, terrible time for the hospitality industry. Now, speakeasies were everywhere. Everyone still drank, and for the first time, women were allowed to join in without any stigma. But many of the best bartenders, and notably their patrons, uh, moved to England, continental Europe, and the Caribbean. There was a guy, Eddie Wolk, an Englishman who became a U.S. citizen. Uh, he tended bars in New York, and during Prohibition, he moved to Havana, where he invented the El Presidente cocktail. Uh, Frank Meyer, an Austrian who started at the Hoffman House in New York, he went to Paris to work at the Ritz Hotel's Café Parisian, and he invented the Bee's Knees. I was talking about Harry Craddock, and England already had uh, an American-style cocktail scene in London when Harry Craddock moved there. Uh, he had worked at the Knickerbocker Hotel and the Hoffman House. And he started working at the Savoy Hotel's American Bar. It was named the American Bar under Ada Coleman, the lady who invented the hanky-panky. And I said he came out with the Savoy Cocktail Book in 1931 during Prohibition. Now, it seems that today a number of Gilded Age cocktails are actually coming back. So can you talk a little bit about what's getting popular again and any modern twists on some of these Gilded Age classics? Absolutely. The modern craft cocktail movement has done a lot to reach back to those Gilded Age days and reclaim the lost cocktails and use that spirit of experimentation to make new ones. Some of those from back then could not be made because the ingredients are hard to find or no longer exist or others were simply forgotten. But if you go back to the classics, the Daisies, Collinses, Martinis, Manhattans, Old Fashions, they never left. Bartenders just keep updating them. You can go into a bar and order a Vesper Martini. It's the James Bond Martini based on a, you know, a traditional martini. Another is the Owakan Old Fashioned, which I love. It's created by Phil Ward at Death & Company in Manhattan. Uh, it's a mix of tequila and mezcal with agave syrup and bitters. So spirit, sugar, bitters, that's a bittered sling. And that kicked off a whole new trend in mezcal cocktails. As to lost cocktails, the Clover Club, I think, is the biggest. And it's a gin-based cocktail named for a turn-of-the-century men's club in Philadelphia. First published in 1901, it was a huge hit at the Waldorf Astoria. Uh, 1909 recipe splits the gin with vermouth, and that's what most people have today. You can have one at Julie Reiner's Clover Club in Brooklyn. That's She brought back that cocktail. Do you have a favorite personal Gilded Age cocktail, Don? 
Besides the old-fashioned, I love a Sazerac. Uh, there's a reason why it stood the test of time. It's terrific in its simplicity. It works great with rye whiskey. It works great with cognac or rye and cognac mixed or, or maniac. And at its heart, it's an improved whiskey cocktail, basically an old-fashioned with a rinse of absinthe served up. And it's one of those almost lost cocktails because rye whiskey was something that was extremely hard to find for quite a long time. If you went to a bar in the 1990s and asked for a rye Manhattan, they would have looked at you funny. They wouldn't have known what you were talking about, even at fancy bars. And now you can go into any dive bar and ask for a rye, and they'll say, what kind would you like? They've got a whole whole shelf full. And of course, absinthe was illegal until 2007. So Sazeracs were not really properly made until this century again. Now, Don, I understand that in honor of the Gilded Gentleman, you have actually invented a brand new cocktail, the Gilded Gentleman. Well, what is it and how did you create it? I'm so honored. Well, at first, I made something with absinthe, which I love, but that's such a niche taste. I wanted the Gilded Gentleman to be on everybody's lips, so I revised it. Uh, so for Gilded Gentleman, what I have is an ounce of bourbon and half an ounce each of orange liqueur and fresh lemon juice, uh, shaken with ice until it's chilled and strained into a chilled glass, then topped with champagne. Just rub a lemon twist around it and, and discard the twist. That's it. It's like a sidecar, but with whiskey, replacing the cognac, and then topped with champagne. So to come up with it, I thought, what would they have had back then that is also easy to find now? Obviously, champagne. A gilded gentleman must have champagne. Well, I would say. <laughs> and I, I thought of a whiskey daisy, which I really do like. It's, it's not as popular as the other daisies, but I really do love it. And thinking of the kind that would have a splash of soda water, but replacing the soda water with champagne. It's a nice switch. I just prefer it dry, although they did like it very sweet in the 1800s. The whiskey's bourbon, because I thought it would go better with the champagne. As to the orange liqueur, I thought of how different bartenders of the Gilded Age would have different ingredients for the same recipes, depending on what they had available. So use what's available, uh, triple sec, curacao, combier, cointreau, grand marnier. Just make sure that the lemon juice is fresh squeezed and, and strain it. That makes the drink. I thought a lot about the glassware too, uh, whether it should be in a cocktail coupe or a champagne flute. And the answer is yes. It should be in a cocktail coupe or a champagne flute. Uh, again, to be authentically period, different bartenders would have their own versions of the same drinks. We could even serve it in a wine glass or with a sweeter champagne in a tall glass with ice uh, and a straw as a highball. It's your choice, but it's quite tasty. I've made a few of them. I'm so honored. Thank you so much, Don. I'm curious, you mentioned the glassware. Was there any significant difference between what we would have seen as Gilded Age glassware and what we see today? There's a different significance between what we would have seen as Gilded Age glassware and what we would have seen as glassware in the 1970s and the 80s. A lot of the fine glassware has gone by. But because of the craft cocktail movement, we've been bringing back julep glasses and tulip glasses. And now there is even Nick and Nora glasses named after the, the Thin Men movies, which hold, you know, Beautiful little smaller amounts. Uh, that's something I didn't mention before is that the cocktails back in the 1800s were smaller than the giant goblets we, we've been getting today at, you know, some of the chain restaurants. That's why you could drink so many cocktails at a time because they were smaller. So, Don, my last question here, if there was a bar or saloon from the Gilded Age that you could go back to and visit yourself, what would it be and what would you order? 
I would go back to the bank exchange in San Francisco and order a Pisco Punch from Duncan Nichols just to find out what an actual original Pisco Punch was. Maybe I'd visit the Hoffman House and order a glass of 19th century champagne just to see what the place looked like in person. Or any establishment where Jerry Thomas was behind the bar, especially later in his career, and I'd ask him to come up with something new because I knew he could do it. Don, there is so much more that we could talk about. But I am so glad that you have joined me today for this look back in history with this golden age of Gilded Age cocktails. I I guess this just means you'll have to come back for another show. What do you think about that? I would be honored. (laughs) I would, too. Don, thank you so much for joining me today and to really dig into the history of cocktails and just what happened in the Gilded Age. Thank you so much. Thank you, Carl. And to my listeners, make sure to follow Don on Instagram at Green Fairy Society. And if you are in New York or when you come to New York, join Don's monthly absinthe tasting Belle Epoque themed salon, the Green Fairy Society at the Red Room. And just in case you haven't yet, I invite you to listen to my two previous shows with Don, episode number 21, Dancing with the Green Fairy, The Mysteries of Absinthe, and episode 33, Tasting Stars, The Sparkling History of Champagne. And make sure to look out for another show with Don in the coming months. The Gilded Gentleman is produced by Bowery Boys Media, and this episode was edited and produced by Kieran Gannon. I invite listeners to join the Gilded Gentleman as patrons on Patreon.com. The support of my patrons is crucial to continuing to create and produce the show. I am very grateful. Please visit Patreon.com slash The Gilded Gentleman. I couldn't do it without you. And I'll see you soon. What's life without a little glint of gold?